I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what God will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected by him. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not delay. The rampart refers to the defensive wall around the city, and generally the space along the top of the wall where a sentry would walk or station himself. This passage begins with a commitment to God from the prophet, and he's basically saying, I will prepare myself to be ready to respond the right way when God rebukes me. It's a very interesting thought. Then that commitment is answered by God, and God is basically saying, get ready to write what I am about to give you. Then the key that I emphasized at the New Year's Eve meeting was, make it plain that they may run. This last thought indicates that ambiguity paralyzes progress. He says, make it plain that they may run. So if we are stalled in our obedience to God, unable to run in the paths of His command, this passage would suggest that clarity and plainness of vision can set our feet in motion. The Bible is always using real-life phenomena to illustrate spiritual realities. In Habakkuk's day, there were no radios, phones, or the like. Messages had to be conveyed accurately and transmitted by foot from post to post. A city guard would station himself on the ramparts, the top of the wall, ever watching for a runner and the urgent message he might carry. These messages would include instructions to be transmitted to another sector of the battle or the city. They might tell of enemy troop movements or give direction from an army commander or king. When a message is highly anticipated, the sentry stations himself on the ramparts. In this place, he is ready to see the runner and is prepared to transmit the news which that runner brings over the wall to the scribe waiting inside the city so that the next runner can take off, carrying the word to its next destination. This scenario immediately presents possible breakdowns. If the guard on the rampart misunderstands the runner from outside, he may cause the troops to go the wrong direction and cost the nation catastrophic loss. If the scribe scrawls an illegible message, its arrival at the next relay will only confuse. You can almost imagine a runner stamping his feet, trying to read the plaque in his hand. What does this say? Are they supposed to move southwest or west? It is incumbent upon the scribe to make the message plain that they may run who read it. Remarkably, Habakkuk is not referring to battle messages traveling efficiently through Israel's cities when he says this. He uses this analogy to illustrate what it's like to acquire God's direction, received and relayed through kingdom ranks. The prophet indicates that his thirst for guidance from the Lord makes him get out on the perimeter, so to speak, of the city, scanning the horizons as if from the ramparts, watching, expecting, preparing his heart to receive a message and pass it on. 
that it may spread without hindrance throughout the kingdom. And the Lord tells him, make it plain. And the Lord indicates a lack of plainness may delay necessary action. Based on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3, we know that three veils potentially obscure God's will in a person's life. What are those three veils? The first is a veil of ambiguous speech over the communicator's message. The second is a veil that hinders the heart and emotions of the hearer from believing. And the third is a veil that confuses and blinds the minds of the hearers from understanding God's message. 2 Corinthians 3, 13 through 18. Here's the first veil. Paul says, We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face, but we use great boldness of speech. The first veil is one that is ambiguous speech over the communicator. And then he says, a veil lies over their hearts. There's the second veil. But that one is taken away when someone turns to the Lord. The third, he says, and the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So there's a veil that can be over your mind so that you can't understand. A veil over your heart so that you don't feel. And a veil over the communicator so that there's no distinction and there's no action taken as a result of the message. Jesus says, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Ask yourself, why does Jesus classify this failure to discern the signs of the times as hypocrisy? Would that be your first choice of words for describing the undiscerning? Hypocrites! When I read that, it startled me. In the midst of his rebuke for their lack of discernment, he calls them out as being hypocrites. You think of all the things in our lives personally that we fail to rightly discern. And we think that the onus belongs to God, but only if He hasn't sent a messenger. How can they hear? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they be sent? But if that preacher has been sent, and if that message has come, and we fail to discern and act, then we fall under this rubric that the Pharisees were under, hypocrites. One reason he uses this term hypocrites is if you claim to be a spiritual leader in Israel like Nicodemus and yet only perceive according to the flesh, the natural man's viewpoint. That's hypocrisy. Secondly, if by your words you admit to living in a world racing toward final judgment under the power of dark forces, fallen angels, and Satan himself, and yet with your actions you do not reflect this truth, this conviction, that also is hypocrisy. You live life blind to the dragon's sinister face lurking in the shadows of these times, with his sights set on you as his possible prey. He says the enemy prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
You live in a lollipopping, rainbow positivity bubble which assumes that all things will continue as they have since the fathers fell asleep. The hypocrisy inheres between what you claim to believe and how you actually live. Hypocrisy will become evident when the times become terrible and people who are called the people of God refuse to see it. You don't live like this world is not your home, like the world with all its works will soon melt with fervent heat, like the righteous will scarcely be saved and even the elect deceived. You don't live expecting to hear a great voice calling God's people out of their confused mixture in Babylon, the world. You live in contradiction with your professed beliefs. It's not just pitiable blindness preventing you from discerning the times. It's self-deception based on infatuation with a world, a fixation that prevents you from seeing through the very institutions you still love and rely on. In Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. So they are hopelessly confused. Oh, poor Gentiles? No. They have closed their minds. God didn't shut their minds off. They closed their minds. They hardened their hearts. There is not a person hopelessly confused who will not have the opportunity and with it the grace to be enlightened if they so will. But many don't. Christians today claim to believe the apostles and Jesus when they say all the kingdoms of this world lie under the control of the evil one, but they can't help themselves getting caught up in the politics and the glorification of the kingdoms of this world. With your words, you admit that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness, and that Satan intends to kill, steal, and destroy. Yet with your actions, you send your kids to those very institutions that brainwash them with an anti-Christian, God-hating life ethic. Do you see the hypocrisy? With their words, they believe God when He says, come out, of her, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will be your God and you will be my sons and daughters. But with their actions, they hate separation, despise being different. They want to show the world that they can look like her, act like her, compete in her systems. They claim to believe that if anyone loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him, and whoever seeks to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yet when the world changes its values on what marriage and family look like, they change with it. When the world changes its styles of modesty or decency, they change with it. And this is the very definition of hypocrisy. You cannot receive from God spiritual discernment and revelation to expose the institutions you're still in bed with, in love with, and pursuing as the place of your fulfillment and peace. The American church is living in constant conflict with her professed beliefs. Christians reason not from spiritual discernment, but according to their own desires. As the saying goes, love is blind. If the church is blind to the signs of the times, 
It's because the church is in love with the world and love is blind. And there again is what makes this blindness hypocrisy, claiming you're Christ's bride while your affections belong to a different lover, to the world. We're talking about how this self-deception works on great matters of everyday Christian life. But perhaps there's an insight into how this self-deception works with the coronavirus. And I'll go over some of this briefly. We consider the coronavirus. We know it's being manipulated by those with a stated agenda to give more power to the state and condition us to march in our places so that we would thoughtlessly accept totalitarianism when it indeed comes. In their crazed rush to destabilize the nation and destroy what's left of Christian culture, the left fuels hate and fear. COVID-19 is a powerful tool in their arsenal. I know that 94% of those who've died had comorbidities, so to speak. I know, I know, I've heard it all, I know. <laughs> but the problem is, how are we being deceived by our own predilections? We don't like this pandemic, and understandably so. It's destroying our businesses in some instances, separating families in other cases, and being manipulated by wannabe tyrants. It's hindering our overseas missions, church meetings, and our times to connect and become one in Christ's spirit and love. Only the devil loves this virus, and perhaps some on the left. Yet normal people, sane people, hate it. The question, though, becomes, does my dislike for the virus's imposition and its sinister manipulation by politicians incline me toward oversimplifying it and even dismissing it as no more than a bad cold, a media-fueled conspiracy blown out of proportion? After all, they say hospitals are made to misrepresent deaths as COVID. The Democrats are playing it for political gain, and it'll go away on November 4th. Just wait and see. All of these things may be true, but they do not give me spiritual discernment or insight from God. They are not a word coming to me while I stand on the ramparts. They are me being led by the leash of my own emotional dislikes or likes. Suppose I stack my bitter aversions toward the crisis on one side of the scales and then try to make a balanced, impartial judgment as to its nature. In that case, I position myself to be deceived, inclined only to hear and accept what confirms my dislikes. As Christians, do we believe Jesus when He said plagues and pestilence would mark the end times? Do you believe that? And who could authoritatively say that this is not one of those plagues. Since we know plagues and pestilence will mark the end times, who would be prepared to authoritatively say, not it? Well, but 200,000 people died. Still, not it. Do we believe Jesus when He said, come out of Babylon so that you receive not of her plagues? I don't think Jesus was only speaking metaphorically. He was talking about real sickness disease, and plagues. We can all remain prayerfully optimistic that this virus will soon recede in the rearview mirror by God's grace. And yet COVID-19 is a wake-up call, a time for evaluation, revelation, preparation, and transformation in the church. Not everything that it's revealed has been wonderful.
It's revealed things in us that we needed to see, but that are awful and need to change. Close friends of mine have contracted this virus and unwittingly spread it to those whom they love, even the elderly, who are in grave danger for their lives. My friends did not spread this virus by willingly thumbing their noses at health guidelines from either the church or medical uh, establishment. In their thinking, they assumed they were hearing the instructions and taking precautions. They just failed to sufficiently calculate how much weight their emotional distaste or the structure and inconvenience of their lifestyle was going to put on one side of the scales, tilting them towards self-deception to such an extent that they would label the virus as just a cold. The problem was not rebellion, but self-deception. Some even went to public events and celebrations while burning fevers, all the while telling themselves it was just a cold. Why? Because they don't love the people in danger? No, they genuinely do. Because they didn't believe the virus posed any risk? No, they acted carelessly and became unwitting instruments for harm because they did not question themselves and doubt the conclusions they reached, which were heavily weighted by their emotional distaste for the crises inconvenience and the political hay being made of it by the unscrupulous. Now we can see it in that example of the spread of COVID, but do we see how the devil deceives us on a daily basis or even over major life-altering matters of where we should go, what we should do, who we should be with, how we should live, the course for our children? Do you see how your emotional distaste for something or the plausibility structures of your lifestyle can weight the scales in such a way to deceive you? When you say, well, um, this might be coronavirus, but I can't stop this job. Uh, so, you know, the truth is, I think it's just a cold. You have not added to the question, to the equation, a helpful piece to help you evaluate whether it is or isn't coronavirus. You have merely stacked on one side of the scale an obvious, quote unquote, reality that pushes you to a so-therefore conclusion that is not from God. That's how people make mistakes. That's how people get completely deceived. Jesus poignantly revealed that accurate assessment and discernment only comes when our will, our wishes, inclinations, aggravations are dead. In John 5.30, he says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Can you have just judgment when your will is on the scales? If you're seeking God's will, and you're trying to come to an accurate judgment of a matter about your life, your future, someone you care about, it does not matter what. If your will is on the scales, can your judgment of that matter be just? No, it cannot. When does your judgment become just? 
offer your will, in fact, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is exactly what's reasonable, then you will know, attest, and approve what God's good and acceptable will is. You cannot know, attest, or approve God's will until a sacrifice has first been made. You cannot have accurate judgment until your will is off the scale, until something has truly died and you are okay with everything going exactly opposite as how you wish. And then suddenly you can know God's will. In John 7, 17, he says, if you are willing to do God's will, then you will know concerning the doctrine, whether it be a man or of God. You cannot know. You cannot come to a place of, of conviction, of clear-minded discernment, until you're willing to go against your will. I believe this pandemic represents a trial run for the church to reveal its ear for the Spirit, its precise obedience, unity, and love. The days are coming when spiritual discernment will ultimately prove crucial. Suppose we have not learned to remove our private prejudices from the scales of discernment. In that case, our comparatively small dislikes and aggravations will blind our discernment and dupe us into serving as the unwitting useful tools of the enemy. And if we can deceive ourselves about a virus, then we can deceive ourselves about the signs and realities of this time. Human nature tends to underestimate approaching catastrophe. If my auto mechanic tells me that my transmission is going out, I dread the expense. Then, if I'm in the car with my wife and begin to hear a clunk clunk from under the hood, my wife may exclaim, Honey, that's the transmission. It's gone out. What is it in me? that predisposes me to quickly respond, no, 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 that's just a loose bolt. I can fix it in no time. What is it in me that does that? It's just clear, unbiased assessment, right? If someone is in the car with me who is not an owner of the vehicle and does not have to pay that cost, is he going to be as inclined to misdiagnose the problem? The cost of a problem leads us away from accurate discernment of it. When significant changes occur in a culture or nation, when the country's internal transmission is failing, our subconscious minds cannot contemplate the cost, implications, and consequences of such a total breakdown. We reason away what our very eyes see, not to mention the wisdom of God. We convince ourselves that this is easily fixed with another election, a change of, a, of laws, a good program or message. To repeat, love is blind. We are in love with our luxuries, our lifestyles, our sense of normalcy. To believe that the transmission is failing means the collapse of the staid, predictable elements of our life. Therefore, we are predisposed to be deceived. And it works in reverse, too. 
people are predisposed to get it, to be clued in when it's something they want. In fact, they often see it when it's not even there. The Lord speaks through Jeremiah and says, These false prophets heal the wound of my people superficially by saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Paul says, In the last days, men will heap to themselves teachers who tell them, what does he say? What they want to hear. Teachers who will scratch their itching ears. He's likening us to a dog. And because no people get their ears scratched. <laughs> he says, teachers to scratch their itching ears and tell them what they want to hear. The dog is going to go to the person who has the biscuit. <laughs> the dog is going to go to the person who will rub their ears. You've all seen my dog Sheba, how she goes from each one. And when one gets tired, she goes to the next because she has a, a heap of teachers <laughs> who tell her what she wants to hear. Oh, you're a good dog. <laughs> and that's what our carnal nature wants to do in relationships. You want to go with people who flatter you. And the Bible says Satan corrupts the foolish with flattery. He corrupts the ignorant with flattery. Oh, you're such a good dog. Scratch, scratch, scratch. And we wag our tail and we have this little agreement that isn't this such a great life? If you could be a detached observer with no obligation to front the cost of the failed transmission, so to speak, you would have no difficulty whatever in diagnosing the real problems of our day. You would find the rationalizations of the owner silly and delusionally absurd. Likewise, if you were not part of this culture, nor lived in this country, but saw our cities burning, heard our media's fomenting hate, and witnessed our politicians spewing lies, you would have no difficulty diagnosing the collapse of a nation. You would be convinced that times of trouble, uncertainty, and upheaval were on America's horizon. In short, if you were a full-fledged citizen of the kingdom of God, part of the holy nation and the royal priesthood, considering yourself a stranger and alien in this world, you would discern what is happening all around you. But it is love for Babylon that blinds us to its collapse. Revelations 18.8 says, Therefore, these plagues will overtake Babylon in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred ruins. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, How terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon! You great city, in a single moment, God's judgment came on you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. Why were those merchants not able to see the trouble coming? Because they needed someone to buy their goods. The majority throughout history 
have initially misdiagnosed every destructive revolution. The Bolshevik, the Mao, the Nazi, the Cuban, the Pol Pot, and all the other hideous revolutions that have rocked our planet. Leaving the particular COVID crisis aside, consider the broader cultural shifts occurring around you. Ask yourself, if I was a German in the 1930s, would I have recognized the signs of these times? And if I am unable to recognize the signs today, is it because of a hypocrisy that indicates I'm still in love with the world? Consider the five main supports of a peaceful culture. Faith, the nuclear family, health and safety, education, economy, etc. Kind of picture those as pillars holding up something we call a society. Now imagine for a moment that we have an arch enemy intent on destroying our culture. How would he do it? He would systematically undermine each of these pillars structural integrity, knowing that nothing more would be needed to demolish an entire society than to compromise those main supports. So let's go through those supports. What has happened to the place of faith, faith in God, in America over the past hundred years? Could anybody deny that a full-on assault has been waged against faith in America over the past hundred years? Beginning in 1947, when the Supreme Court interpreted the First Amendment not to mean that there could be no state church, but there should be free exercise of religion, but instead it, it interpreted it as uh, there could be no religion in the public sphere. And then on down through. The founders of our unique American experiment of limited government recognized that the government they had created would not work without a strong religious foundation and the morals instilled by local religious communities. The government limited itself to the coercion required to punish those who would not submit themselves to religion's non-coercive authority as expressed in a local community. If that sounds too far-fetched to believe, take it from the founders themselves. George Washington, at his farewell address, after serving his second term as president, said the following, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He believed that the political system over which he presided as the first president, he believed that political system relied on religion and morality as indispensable supports. That means if you dispense of them, the political system doesn't work. Speaking to the Massachusetts militia, the second president of the United States, John Adams, said, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. 
they designed a body of laws that has proven to safeguard civil liberties like none other. But the framers of that Constitution, one of the signers himself, John Adams, said, this Constitution is wholly inadequate to the government of any people that is not moral and religious. He also wrote in, eight, in 1785, Before any man can be considered a member of civil society, he must be considered a subject of the governor of the universe. The framers of the Constitution and those who contributed to its underlying principles understood that subjection to God and the moral code embedded in creation itself was the prerequisite to the freedoms afforded under the limited government they proposed. Without subjection to a power higher than themselves, men would always be unbridled and ultimately degenerate to their worst tendencies. The constraint would either have to come from the governor of the universe or the state. Early Americans' moral restraints allowed citizens to enjoy the unparalleled freedoms of limited government. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French diplomat, was commissioned to examine U.S. prisons and penitentiaries. He wrote extensively about civil society and morality in the United States and their effects on crime. In the extensive notes he took, which he later made into a book, Democracy in America, he observed, and I quote, Nothing is more striking to a European traveler in the United States than the absence of what we term the government or the administration. Written laws exist in America, and one sees that they are daily executed. But although everything is in motion, the hand which gives the impulse to the social machine can nowhere be discovered. Is it possible that the hand which Alexei de Tocqueville could not see was the religion and the morality that Washington and Adams spoke about? the essential support. What was the unseen hand which held together 1930s America? Tocqueville continues, All communities are obliged to secure their existence by submitting to a certain dose of authority, without which they fall prey to anarchy. This authority may be distributed in several ways, but it must always exist somewhere. In other words, citizens would have to choose whether they would submit to the unseen, non-coercive hand of God internally restraining their baser tendencies or submit to the iron yoke of anarchy. If they did not choose the former, they would automatically be choosing the latter. Tocqueville continues further, quote, Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. This is a man from another country, the French government, who's just gone through the French Revolution, mind you, taking place while our Constitution was being written, and he comes over here commissioned by his government to understand the unique American system. And some of his seminal 
assessments boiled down to this unseen hand of religion that allowed for so much less visible overt government in America. He also made this statement in his book, quote, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. When describing the hallmarks of the end times, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 says, That day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember what I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. What was it that was holding back the lawlessness that he's talking about? This religious and moral ethic that was woven into the very fabric of our national community. It was God. Simply put, that's who was holding it back. Tragically, our country's moral foundation has been hated, mocked, undermined, and destroyed. This has happened as America's primary influencers, media, literature, and education, became increasingly secular and antithetical to small religious communities that instilled moral values in members' lives. The primary conflict is not strictly between believers and unbelievers. No, the battle is between those who accept the invisible restraining hand of God and a limited government with Him versus those who do away with faith and moral restraint so that the government of men may hold absolute authority, both the authority that belongs to God as well as that which is rightfully man's. Totalitarians hate Christianity because they're competing with Christianity's God. They grasp John Adams' words that the Constitution is wholly inadequate for the amoral, unreligious people. To rid the nation of its Constitution and make way for totalitarianism, 
Our opponents need only methodically free individuals from God and morality, and the age-old set of laws will prove wholly inadequate. They shrewdly avoid direct assaults on the Constitution while ever destroying its essential supports. Thus, when it collapses, they may appear as saviors, offering new and novel alternatives. To return to Paul's words concerning the end-time apostasy, it's not hard to imagine what the lawless one refers to. It does not speak of an individual only, but a school of thought, the body politic, that believes man's problems can be answered by man's solutions apart from God. So who is he who now restrains? It is God. As Jesus said, God's government, His kingdom, lives within the hearts of men. There's the restraint that the totalitarians would move out of their way. When that's gone, the corporate idolization of man can take place through knowledge, science, warfare, and other counterfeit signs and wonders. This is a difficult question. How many of you appreciate the Second Amendment? If you believe John Adams' words, that the Constitution, along with its Bill of Rights, is wholly inadequate for a people who is not internally restrained by this religious moral ethic, I want to ask you some questions. Do the sacred liberties that belonged to the morally restrained also belong to the reckless libertines of our day? Does freedom not directly correspond to responsibility? Once cultural trends sanction and release all base appetites in society, is it not blind recklessness to give the unconstrained citizens the same freedoms that were the birthrights of a past America? In the case of a gun, I'd rightly be considered mentally insane to give my four-year-old a firearm. The access to a gun must be predicated on responsibility. Otherwise, I become complicit in the destruction that his predictable irresponsibility is going to create. This raises serious questions about what our country may do to its constitution in the name of securing the safety of its citizens. Many on the right cling to the Bill of Rights as to the Ten Commandments, yet they don't see that they will incrementally be taken away without the moral restraint those rights were predicated upon. If the Founding Fathers knew what would happen today without the limitations imposed by religion and a moral ethic, would they still give those same Bill of Rights to this American population? Now that's a scary question, but it shows that we've been completely duped as to what the game really is, what the battle really is. They're all fighting for the Constitution, and the left is fighting a cultural war. This is not a legal war. It cannot be won in a courthouse. It is won in the hearts of men. And while the church has been marginalized, 
While religion has receded into the background and almost complete obscurity, that internal restraint, that invisible hand of the governor of the universe has slipped from the lives of America's people. And the left has already won the battle. It's only a matter of time because we have a mob of godless, hedonistic, narcissistic, self-serving idiots who are taking over the country. Right now, we have the majority of this country intimidated and acting, including voting in the next administration, based on the fear of a wild mob who is burning down America. And the right thinks that it's a political battle. There's a paradox in all of this. Civil liberties correspond to internal restraint. And personal libertinism must necessarily give birth to civil totalitarianism.